I think his view is that, yeah, 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 three cheers for socialism, because socialism is the step that leads us to Christendom. Which is insane. Yo, what is going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And this week we are going to be covering an essay that's called Three Chairs for Socialism by, what is he, theologian, philosopher? Yeah, theologian, orthodox theologian. Orthodox theologian David Bentley Hart, who... Um, is a quite erudite scholar. He wrote a book back in, I guess, like the early 2000s that was called uh, The Beauty of the Infinite. Is that right? Was it around like 2008, 2009, something like that? That's when I read it in seminar, yeah, but it might have come out a few years before that. I'm not sure. Okay. And it was a, um, a very sort of what would you say? Not controversial. Was it controversial? I mean, it's not controversial because it wasn't not like edgy or anything. Yeah. No, it was just very... Um, compelling it led to a lot of discussion and debate especially the blogosphere and he's been someone who has you know there's like youtube channels of him talking with philosophers about all kinds of issues about the existence of god and darwinian theory and stuff like that but recently he's been talking a lot about socialism and he's critiquing socialism from a um sort of what we might call a romantic critique like we've talked about previously similar to uh, some of the work of like eugene mccarraher um or what you might call like a, a kind of christian socialism or a christian civic um civic vision or some sort of caritas or something like that and so uh he wrote this essay that was in common wheel and so we're going to kind of talk about his critique of capitalism but then maybe even also his critique of um, other variants of socialism while trying to offer a christian type of socialism so that's what we're going to talk about in the main segment but before we do that we should mention if you want to support us in tangible ways you can go to patreon.com slash and you can support us through several different tiers and get access to a bunch of different goodies that we prepare for y'all like the monthly newsletter which includes extra sticky leaves and shitty minutes as well as bonus content in various forms um, and all that good stuff, yeah? Yeah. So before we get to that main segment, talking about David Bentley Hart and theology and shit like that, we got to do the shitty minute, dude. Oh, that is right. You know what that is? Oh, I know. Do the people know? I should probably tell you, just in case you forgot. Okay, please do. The shitty minute's the part of the episode where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding <clears throat> our gears this week so Austin. What's got you down? So this podcast is now going to be all coronavirus all the time. So if you tuned in for your <laughs> coronavirus hot takes, this is the place to be. No, so, you know, last week, your shitty minute was about this whole, like, we are the virus meme that has been quite common, that's being reproduced in all of the Insta spheres, Twitter spheres, Facebook spheres, everything, right? Well, there's another one that is coming from the left, that I tweeted about recently. I did a you know a, a multi-tweet thread about it that I kind of wanted to just talk about with you because you actually liked one of the tweets, and so I thought it might be kind of interesting for me to express my frustration uh. and maybe some of my disagreements, and then we can open it up and kind of maybe chat for a second. But it's basically this idea that like now is the moment. We can seize it. 
right? That this is the opportunity because the cracks of capitalism are being shown. And now is the moment where we can create the world anew. And what really triggered my response, it wasn't really, it's kind of unfair the way that I tweeted it in one sense, because the author of this essay that was in The Nation is a wonderful, wonderful scholar on the history of uh, neoliberalism in particular. His name's Quinn Slobodian, so I don't want to shit on him. I really love his work on the history, on economic history. But I don't know if um, I can fault him for being an academic and that maybe his shortcomings come from uh, political or philosophical uh, musings outside of his work as an economic historian. I, I don't know where it comes from. I don't even really need to spend that much time. But basically, in the article, he kind of was like, listen, this is the time where we can actually rebuild anew. And uh, he's not the only person that's saying this kind of thing. I've seen this constantly throughout, you know, articles published in Jacobin and then shitloads of people just on the Twitter sphere and other think pieces. And then I think you constantly see this, right? And my concern is this. It is not that there aren't contradictions in capitalism. This is one of the central insights of a Marxist critique of political economy, is that there is something fundamentally contradictory about the constitutive nature of capitalism itself, right? So it's not that there aren't contradictions. It's not that there aren't crises. That's another very kind of salient Marxist point, that capitalism tends towards crisis. Um, my, my concern is that I feel like and it's the the irony here is kind of thick because I feel like there is a type of late neoliberal positivity that comes from what we might call uh, viewing the world through the lens of the society of the spectacle that really fetishizes the moment that like this is it guys like we're in it now is the time and my worry is that that is sometimes pitched at such a level of abstraction. And at such a level of a kind of like emotional fervor that it just seems so much like these people have watched Hollywood films and they think they're like Matthew McConaughey, able to like stir up the students to go out and protest and take down the big baddie, right? And that's how it, it so often comes across. Now, I don't want to say that that's the intention of the authors or the people who are tweeting it. I don't think that. I think it's sincere. Like most of the time, I'm going to say damn near all the time. It does not come from a place of bad faith. It doesn't come from a place of um, of trying to be superficial. But my concern is, is that there is a type of capitalist imaginary that ha that encloses even our affects, even our feelings. And I think sometimes that when we feel that sentiment welling up within us that we're like, oh my God, these are the contradictions. We end up being blind to the truth of the matter. And here is where I'm going to be pessimistic, which is maybe not normal for my brand, but this is where I'm going to go hardcore pessimistic here. I actually don't think this is the moment. As a matter of fact, I kind of think the opposite. I think that capitalism is always um, in crisis. I actually write about this in my book by using the kind of idea of kairos as being like the opportune moment to act, which is something that comes from rhetoric and then it has a long uh, history through philosophy where people use the word kairos as a sort of qualitative different time. You see this in the work of like Benjamin and Derrida as well. But that kairos can be used to announce, if you will, the opportune moment to act, a type of qualitative break from the temporal order. Well, I tend to, basically I expand on that and I say, actually, I think that it's always the kairotic moment 
to use the like adjectival version of kairos. It's always the kairotic or chironic moment, which means that there's never a time when it isn't the time to organize, to contest, to build alter alternatively. And that actually, I think the moments of crisis are actually the moments when it's not possible to tap uh, to topple capitalism. And here's why. I think if you look at this moment right now, there's actually a real stifling of collective power for a couple through a couple of ways. One, people can't take to the streets, so uh, one of the kind of like traditional ways of organizing has been stifled. Um, but two, and perhaps more importantly, when you see like asset devaluation, when you see unemployment spikes, when you see things like that, that's just prime opportunity for financial mechanisms to assetize those weaknesses in the economy. And I think part of the reason that um, people miss this on the left is because they are focused too much on kind of like older understandings of uh, the way that the capitalist economy functions. And maybe I focus too much on the financialized aspects. That's what some of my more like traditional Marxist friends would say. But I think we should focus more on this because I think that precisely what you're seeing is a type of devaluation of certain assets so that vulture investors can come in and buy these things up. And I actually think that, that what happens is, is there's not actually a weakening of capitalism on a global scale, but actually it just creates more of an opportunity for the conditions for financialized capitalist enclosure to seize the moment, not the opportunity for labor or for um, oppressed minorities to stand up and assert their power. I, this is, I think that actually this is a very impotent time for that. Now, that doesn't mean you can't organize and you can't stir up emotion and you can't get fucking pissed and you can't look at the inequalities that are more exacerbated during a time of crisis. That's absolutely something that is necessary. That's not my point. My point is, is that maybe we could say ontologically speaking, I just don't think that crises are the moment where somehow these gaps or these spaces are most potent. As a matter of fact, I think it's the opposite. I actually think that these gaps and these spaces become impotent from the perspective of um, contestations to capital. So that's kind of my shitty minute. Yeah, you know, I think there's an important point to remark here about contingency and that it, it seems like whether in crisis or, or not, um, it's always a time to organize and to fight for a better world and for, you know, more power to labor and less to capital and whatnot. But there's some sense in which you might say, you know, a crisis is a specific time where um, things have to move quickly, right? And which side capital labor is already more organized and ready to act quickly? Well, clearly it's capital, right? So uh, right, we're talking exactly. about who's more organized to respond to a crisis more quickly um, according to their interests. It's going to be disaster capitalism and not, you know, yeah. uh, labor power. So, um, but that doesn't mean that, again, that things are still contingent. And so um, stuff can happen that we're not ready to predict or don't seem likely um, at the time. And so, yeah, I think I, I agree with you that there's a sense in which the fetishization of, of crisis as an opportunity to change things um, really seems more like a way to sort of relieve the anxiety of knowing that it's probably not going to happen, right? Um, and then being kind of despondent at the fact that there's this obvious opportunity to change things um, drastically, and that's probably not going to be taken. I mean, just look at the fact that um, this would be the time of all times if we had a progressive president to buy up all the oil companies and basically hmm. put them out of business in the next you know, uh, half decade. And that's just not going to happen, right? It could easily happen, and it's not going to. Um, and that's that can make you kind of despondent, right? Um, yeah. But you can't. You can't do that. That's not going to help or anything. That's not going to give you any um, 
sort of uh, you know practical syllogisms for for acting right now. And so you want to just believe that yeah something's going to happen. It's the it's the chirotic moment and, and things are going to change starting now. Um, but it's not likely. It's never really likely. Um, hmm. So and there's one thing that you know Doug Hedwood says this a lot, and I think I'm I've taken it as kind of a um, a bit of a like a I don't know what you call it like a a way like a like a ideological trajectory, and that's that you know the progressive movement in America tends to do better when Democrats are in power, because mm. when Republicans are in power, especially you know the you know neoliberal Republicans post Reagan, um, Democrats have and even regular people who generally want you know um, things that are coextensive with the progressive movement or whatever. Um, tend to be on this, we just got to defeat the bad guy. Like, let's just uh, rally around each other and defeat the bad guy and, and forget about policy goals for right now. And the center of the party uses that as a way of shaming people into voting for neoliberals. And it's very effective at doing so, right, from Clinton hmm. on down. Um, when Democrats are in power, that's when progressives tend to gain more power in the party, right? You can see that during the you know, second uh, Obama term when progressives gained more power in the party than we ever would have thought imaginable, probably. Uh, and I mean, like, far left, like democratic socialists even, right? Um, hmm. We have several democratic socialist uh, congresspeople um, that are, have, like, major political limelight, and you would not have predicted that <laughs> 10 years ago, right? right? So I do think that having Democrats in power and when things are kind of stable and they're actually fighting for, like, you know, mm. uh, balancing the budget and cutting Medicare and stuff like that. When people start saying, well, wait a minute, this is bullshit. <laughs> and then they actually start thinking, okay, policy matters now and not just rally around the flag and defeat the bad guy. So that's not necessarily like a universal statement of, of you know, um, when change can happen and when it can't happen. But I do think that there's, there's something similar there in what you're talking about in terms of um, not fetishizing this moment of crisis is the only time when things can really change. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I do want to be clear too. I think there's like a, a a relative. There's something relative about this. Like we might be able to say, like if we can use a quantified scale here, that like let's just suppose that in this this crisis that we're experiencing now, let's just suppose uh, the forces of anti-capitalism make two steps forward. Right. That's great. My point is is that there will be an exponentially um, so a relative exponential greater amount of gain and enclosure and accumulation on the quote-unquote other side, right? So just look at what happens after 9-11. After 9-11, everyone starts loving each other and hugging each other and everyone, you know, like is a little bit nicer to their neighbor and all of this shit. Unless yeah, and that's great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then what happens is you get the Patriot Act and you get ramped up surveillance that then becomes normalized, right? And then you get 2008, and it's like, oh, yeah, capitalism. See, Marx was right all along. And you get all these economists, like neoclassical economists, they are like, hmm, maybe we should reconsider Marx. So you get these heterodox, like Keynesians, they are like, hmm, maybe Marx does have something to say. And then what happens? Well, ramped up datification, financialization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, um, uh, add that onto uh, the surveillance, and then you get just fucking, like, surveillance capitalism, Right. So that's my concern is my concern is that these crises, what they do is they actually open up these gaps, precisely what you said, for the forces that are already constituted to control further power because they're the ones who are potent. But there's a real impotency on the side of the forces of opposition. And I don't mean that in the sense that there aren't 
movements and that there aren't gains being made and that there aren't like communities, like alternative communities. Of course there are. But my point is, is that on a large global scale in contesting capitalist hegemony, I just don't think that this is the moment to build anew. I think it's always the moment to build anew. And I actually worry that this is the moment that fucking capital becomes a goddamn monster, you know? And that's that's what happens, is that it re-legitimizes and it re, uh, it, what's the word I'm looking for? It kind of like, uh, for some reason, I'm like picturing like a, a sports team that um, like has just gotten like fractured and all of a sudden, like I'm thinking like a football field, like all the players then like circle around the running back and protect it so like nobody can get them, right? Like they were like scattered, but then all of a sudden they like reconfigure in a way that makes it impossible. It's like the flying V uh, in the Mighty Ducks, right? It's this impenetrable move that uh, that will just blast through everything. And I feel like they've always got that wild card. That wild card is there. And it's not some sort of like conspiracy theory. Like, yeah, there are people making deals and shit like that. But it's something that's like imminent to the unfolding of history. It's constitutive of the kind of hegemonic system that reproduces itself tendentially at the moment. And so that's my fear. My fear is actually that this is only going to open up the doors more towards like a neo-feudalism. Yeah, socialism or barbarism, dude, does not entail that uh, the rational choice will be made, right? It just means exactly. we're going one way yeah. or the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, otherwise, uh, I would say go read the piece in The Nation by Quinn Slobodian. Uh, read his work, too. He's great. Um, so I don't mean to shit on him. He just, you know, said something that a lot of other people have echoed, and uh, I just I just don't vibe with it. But, yeah, that's kind of what I mean. All right, sweet. Well, let's move on to the main segment. Yeah, brother? Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. So as we said at the outset, we're going to talk about this essay that you actually found and recommended called Three Chairs for Socialism by Orthodox theologian David Bentley Hart. So how do you want to start this off? I mean, you were the one who initially picked this out. So what kind of piqued your interest in the in the first place? Yeah, so just to reiterate a little background on Hart, um, he became, I, mean, I think it's, it's a proper label to apply to him of infamy, right? In these sort mm. of, um, those who work in like the crossroads of philosophy and theology and philosophy of religion and stuff like that. He's really unique in that usually if someone comes from the um, Christian side of that dialogue between philosophy and theology that happened kind of when the continental philosophers started really taking um, Christianity seriously, like uh, Agamben and Bidu and Zizek and people like that. Um, usually when people came from the Christian side, they were either of the kind of um, liberal Schleiermachian um, perspective, where it was basically like they're constructing their own philosophy that has some like Christianish hue to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of the, like, you know, the Pannenberg and the like, you know, the more liberal side of, you know, European um, theology, like ph- philosophical theology and stuff like that. Or they kind of came from the like, totally reactionary um we're fighting off the influence of philosophy kind of a thing with which is i'm thinking of like francis schaefer as being an example of that right <laughs> who's actually my first probably introduction to anything philosophical from a christian perspective in that schaefer mm-hmm. and his like how should we uh then live was trying to like expose how philosophy infected liberal culture in such a way 
um, and we had to know it to fight it or something like that, right? And it's funny mm-hmm. looking back at it now, right? Because his um, his expositions of the various uh, like Enlightenment and post Enlightenment thinkers are just so bad <laughs> and so ignorant. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really appreciated the idea that the idea of you got to know these things if you want to fight them, right? And obviously, um, we both come from a different vantage point now, but I think that was an important segue into taking uh, philosophical issues seriously. Um, even if you're coming from like a religious perspective, Hart's yeah. different, right? Because he's taking he's actually taking the philosophy seriously in a way that sort of the um, the secularized uh, philosophical theologians were, right? He's taking them seriously and actually understanding them, right, uh, from an academic perspective. But then he's he's as reactionary as Schaefer is against it, <laughs> right? Um, in terms of like thinking it as just an exposition of like everything that's wrong with the world. Um, so he kind of combined both of those perspectives in a way, like a, like a dialectical synthesis of them, uh, in a way that I don't think many others had at that point. Like I, you mentioned Eugene McCarraher as being another example. It's kind of similar. I think that's accurate. There's a lot of um, commonality between Hart and McCarraher in terms of what we read for that essay uh, a couple months ago. But I think when, when Beauty of the Infinite came out back in like um, the early 2000s, that was a unique perspective to have. Um, and I think given that Hart was, you know, coming from an orthodox, you know, capital O orthodox background, told you that, like, this is not just some guy who wants to make Christianity palatable for, for philosophers. Like, he wants to um, present a view that he thinks is entirely and wholly uh, Christian um, that can compete and defeat, he thinks, um, mm. the various philosophical options on the table. Um, and I don't think he succeeds. I always kind of thought of Hart as being kind of like, not the enemy, but um, someone to take seriously, but then someone to ultimately defeat. Um, mm. But uh, I always appreciated the stance he took. And we should add also his prose style is the, I mean, it's one of the most unique prose styles in anything academic I can think of. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it is it is definitely, you know, we were talking about it before we started recording. So, yeah. Yeah, there's going to be five to seven words that you've literally never heard of anytime you read a chapter from one of his books or an essay that he writes. This is actually the most tame thing I've ever read by him. Hmm. Yeah, I think that was one of the big talking points when Beauty of the Infinite came out was just the prose, right? Um, Because it is beautiful, but it's also maddening at the same time. But it's different than it's not just like Mr. Thesaurus, like another one of Hart's contemporaries who we've talked about here on the show, John Milbank, who who literally, like, he, he's got just like a dictionary in his brain and just throws out words because maybe he's a little bit on the spectrum and he just doesn't really give a shit about being an effective communicator. Hart's a little bit different, right? Like, Hart, he still has the vocabulary, but at the same time, he employs it in a way that is quite poetic, I think. Oh, yeah, for sure. Milbank is always stilted to me, reading it. Very stilted. Yeah, it's very difficult. I, I still, I find Milbank, I just recently reread parts of Theology and Social Theory, and I found it quite difficult still, you know? Yeah, yeah, Hart's definitely, and he's going for a more poetic um, yeah. prose style. Like, it's, it's on purpose, given his And I think that it's, it's absolutely on purpose, and it's because, I mean, the title of the book, Beauty of the Infinite, there is, maybe not Heideggerian, he would probably hate that, but there is... um a transcendence that he's trying to usher towards, right? Mm-hmm. Now, this might come, maybe he has a love of, like, the mystics and of a type of negative theology. Um, I know I've heard him talk about, uh, like, beauty and kenosis and being in relation to Deleuze, actually. There's a talk on YouTube that you can listen to. I, I listened to this a few months ago. 
and it, it does seem that he absolutely believes that like the transcendent is speaking through the material world and so i think that his use of language is I think that he's over the years cultivated a real concern for trying to, if you will, palpate the surface of matter um, with language being matter that can release, if you will, that can usher us, that can kind of like enrapture us upwards into the infinite or to the to the divine, right? That we can tap into the excess. Yeah, I mean, and as much as we're complimenting him, I also want to add that Hart is uh, inf- he's infamous for more than just, you know, the prose style. He's incredibly polemical. He might be the most polemical. Oh, yeah person working in anything theological that there's ever been, um, or at least in the sort of 20th century, 21st century academic world. <laughs> Not ever, but um, he, he'll he have lines that are just absolutely biting. Um, and he doesn't hold, you know, pull his punches or anything. He will um, lay into absolutely anything and everyone from his from the Christian side to the secular side um, at all. Yeah. So here's an example of um, one of his polemical remarks in this essay that I, that I highlighted just because I wanted to reference it. He's, he's mentioning some response um, to uh, an op- opinion editorial that he produced a few months ago. And he says, the most lunatic response I read came from some fellow whom some jurisdiction of the Orthodox Church has injudiciously consecrated as a priest. <laughs> he just went for this dude's like career right there. <laughs> yeah, I know. He, I he know. has no problem with the ad hominem. He does come across a bit pompous at times. Oh, he's for sure a huge dick. Like he, he's trying to come across <laughs> as a huge dick. He has no problem. With that. Yeah. There's no sense of like Christ-like kindness, right? He's a full-on uh, in the temple yeah. with the whip kind of guy. He is in the temple, which is ironic because the whole argument of the essay is trying to argue for a type of Christian communalism, right? Uh, and charity and love and grace one might assume he doesn't use the word grace i don't think in this particular essay but he definitely talks about love and uh christian community and selflessness and mentions christ all the time so or at least a few times so it is kind of ironic that he himself doesn't really emulate that personally he kind of just is an attack dog you know yeah he's not the kind of guy who's gonna flourish in like the american south in a baptist church that's for sure (laughs) no no so what do we think? I mean, should we just lay out the kind of substance of his argument in this particular essay? Yeah, I mean, the, the context really quickly is just he kind of mentions the idea that, you know, social democracy, democratic socialism, whatever you want to call it, um, has found a bit of a flourishing moment in America over the last um, five to seven years. And, you you know, I'm not sure if you mentioned Bernie or AOC or anybody specifically by name, but he clearly has that in mind, right? Their picture um, is at the top of the essay, so whoever the editors were, they <laughs> they definitely put it in there. Context is provided, right? And, uh, <laughs> and that, that's not just an editorial um, sort of flourishment. There, he clearly is referencing that movement, even if he doesn't even if he doesn't name anybody specifically. Yeah. And it starts out kind of um, a, a normal opinion editorial that you've read a thousand times about how terrible. Um, the sort of healthcare system in America is compared to other countries and how um, social social democracies like in the Nordic states are so much better um, at providing for the basic needs of their citizens. And, you know, we all know that no one who's listening to this is going to be surprised by that um, or be antagonistic towards that point. But given that it's hard, he's not just writing, a, you know, a New York Times opinion editorial about the state of, of democracy in the country, right? He wants to talk about some underlying, um, more abstract philosophical issue. Hmm. And so he asks, 
um, whether or not what Americans have been sold as freedom, which is sort of you know, the, the catch-all term for the ultimate American liberty, um, is actually freedom. And he says at one point that Americans have been persuaded to believe that they are freer in the abstract than, say, Germans or Danes, precisely because they possess far fewer freedoms in the concrete. Hmm. So he's going to try to problematize this idea of freedom. Um, yeah, because he, he asks that. at one point, he says, free, but free from what? Right? That's the question. Yeah. And, and I took this as a real biting criticism of the concept of negative freedom as just a good in itself. Right? And I think that's one of the, the big mistakes of a type of libertarian notion of freedom that that a lot of people on the more conservative side, Republicans, definitely Republicans, libertarian, right? Like they definitely seem to think that we're still in a battle against fucking England, right? Like there's always this chip on the shoulder. There's always too much taxation. There's always too much government control. They're always fighting to assert this freedom from something the monster, the ghost that is chasing them. And I think it's a real neurosis. Like, I think there's a real psychoanalytic, like, pathology here that there is this fear that is constantly chasing them. And it's the fear of some kind of other, something, this this thing, this monster that they feel like is suppressing them. And then at the same time, there is still some notion of a positive freedom, this hope of, like, a celestial kingdom where what where they are they have full autonomy or I'm not quite sure that it's clearly articulated I think it actually operates more at the level of kind of like some sort of ideology because I think they're focused so much on running from the ghost or the monster and that's what I think is really interesting yeah I think you're right that it's psychoanalytic when it comes down to it you know Hart here is gonna eventually uh, contrast this more libertarian impulse that's dominant in America with both a communalism um, type impulse that he thinks comes from most of the Christian tradition, as well as the sort of secular social democratic impulse and kind of, and he's going to talk about why one's better than the other, he thinks, as a response to um, this clearly failed uh, form of individualism. And I do think it's psychoanalytic in that there's something there about this neurosis of worrying about being part of something bigger than yourself, right? Mm. Of sort of being cucked by the group or something like that. Mm. Mm. Um, and that if you are in any way engaged in a social project that you are not the leader of, or you're not dominant, you don't have to sacrifice your interests for someone, for something else, then you're sort of weak-willed. You're not really becoming like the ultimate version of a man or whatever. And it's always, almost always, um, you know, a man who's in vision here, right? So yeah, I do think that there's a sort of uh, neurosis at the root of this. It is interesting to use a recent example, and I've seen this actually a few times, but there was particularly one viral tweet of a woman who was a conservative woman who said something like, like, you can't tell me what to do when it came to the quarantines and the lockdowns because I'm an American. I do what I want. And Your health is not I read my it problem. And, yeah. yeah, like I – and I was like that – like how honest she is for being just an asshole about that like I take what I want. I do what I want. I make my own decisions because I'm an American. Like that somehow that is – constitutive of what it means to be American, that you just do whatever the fuck you want. And there is something in that, this kind of like thumbing your nose up at whatever the monster is that you're trying to thumb your nose up at, and that that you are constantly trying to assert your own little solipsistic 
space. Like, that is just you, and that's all that fucking matters. And I think that tweet was a very explicit form of that, but I think that that idea, that tendency, is quite rampant in, I think, in the American ethos in general, but in particular, in it's more potent or more protracted, let's say, in particular segments. Yeah, and you know, it's obviously morally repugnant in the sense that um, yeah. to just baldly reference your own interests as being of more importance than anybody else's is is repugnant, right, in a moral sense. But it's also, I'm going to bring in the kind of Kantian perspective here, it's psychologically incoherent. Like, <laughs> basically, you're saying, um, I'm going to express true autonomy and freedom by just doing whatever I want without any possible judgment or criticism whatsoever. That's making yourself a slave to your own desires, not even subjecting them to any criticism whatsoever. <laughs> that's like the ultimate form of uh, infantile slavery. Like that's what children do. Children just mm. do whatever they want until they're forced to do otherwise, right? So you're basically mm. just like a really buff child who nobody can stop from like sticking their fingers into a light socket, right? Um, mm. Or drinking the bleach underneath the uh, the sink. Um, so it's 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 a really um, like narcissistic and infantile view, right? But I think it's also just kind of, it's incoherent um, on its face, which is why I think it has such power because, I mean, even in this um, specific example of, of, of healthcare, right? And of whether or not you're going to social distance, um, to say that someone else's health is not your problem, you're going to do what you want and you don't have to um, sort of sacrifice any of your interests for the group, you're putting yourself in danger <laughs> at the same time, right? Um, yeah. So, uh, it's very clear that it's that it that, that it becomes a sort of narcissistic and, and and neurotic like fantasy at that point. There's no sort of catch with reality happening there. Yeah. No. I mean, that's like the, obviously the asshole extreme version. But Hart does spend some time talking about the kind of like nice guy Christian charity version, which you hear so often among, especially out of the tradition that we came out of, like the Baptist um, kind of non-denominational Calvary Chapel type, which is like. Um, well, we don't support government systems because we just, you know, want the freedom to be able to give to whatever charities that we want in ourselves. So we don't want the government taxing us. Um, we want the freedom to be able to give as we so desire. And there's something interesting here because then there's, there's still the individualism, but it kind of expands a little bit to the local community, like the local congregation. So you get a congregation, let's call it Church X, that is filled with individuals who believe in this particular way, and this is like the church's kind of de facto or default standpoint, they want to be able to, one, be tax-free, um, which is a nice perk, um, but two, they want to be able to take the money that is donated to them, and they want to just simply be able to donate it to certain particular causes, and those causes tend to be missions trips, you know, paying for the pastors and the elders and for the local community that, like, you know, they have, like, bonfires and bake sales and they need to repaint their sanctuary and buy new drum kits or whatever the fuck they need to do but they want that freedom to be able to donate that money to whatever causes they deem fit and they don't want to have any sort of larger civic responsibility and the interesting thing is david bentley hart says where they make this delineation um it does not come from as he calls it it does not come from the gospel like jesus doesn't say like yeah 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 like uh love your neighbor but like only insofar as it's not something that's uh, outside of your local congregation, right? And you see this particularly 
most stridently with like the type of congregationalist community. You don't see it as much with like Episcopates or like the Catholic Church quite as much. Do you agree? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so it has something to do with like um, there's something about the congregationalist makeup, which is much more common in the United States than it is elsewhere too, which is interesting, right? Like I don't know if it's maybe behind the Catholic Church, like if the kind of congregationalist model is dominant, but I would imagine it is. Yeah, and there's something very defensive about it, right? Um, this whole, like, we're not going to in any way come under the purview of sort of public control or public concern or have to respond to anything that's democratically decided, right? We have our own local independent source of power here, and we're not going to give that up. I really think it's ultimately about, it comes down to power, right? We're going to have the power to decide where that this money goes. Um, and yeah, you're secretly going to give us tax-free status, but we're not going to call that um, sort of... Uh, help from the public, right? Even though it really is. Um, that's what we're due by God or something like that. Um, and we're not going to sacrifice. If we end up giving this money towards sort of the public coffers, and then it's even if it's executed more efficiently in solving problems like um, hunger and poverty and, and access to healthcare and stuff like that, that doesn't matter because we end up giving up our power in that process. And that's really what it comes down to. I also think there's a little bit of like a martyrdom syndrome going on here but it's like a self-reinforcing one where you can be like, like they just don't get us, you know? Like they won't let us do whatever the fuck we want. Like I can't just run down the street and smack people with Jesus in the face, man. Like I'm so oppressed. And so you can use this as an excuse to just like continue to retreat and become more insular, you know? Like I was thinking about this today. I was thinking about uh, my dad in particular. And I was thinking, what would it take for my dad to march out to the streets, you know? Like I wanted to, sh I wanted to send this article to him, um, but I decided not to because I know it'll turn into like some back and forth that I just don't need to deal with. Um, but I was like, what if I send him this article and, like, like what would be his response? One, and then two, like what would it take for him to actually like march in the streets? Like, he wouldn't do it for, uh, or he hasn't done it at least so far for like inequality, racial injustice. Um, would he do it if all of a sudden the government was like, you can't go to church anymore? Would he, would he take to the streets? Or would he just do like this like silent, we're being punished, let's retreat into the underground caverns kind of thing? You know, like what would he do? I, I don't know. Like what would it take for someone like that to actually go out into like what's the breaking point? And I think part of me wonders this is if there isn't just like a – not when you get to that breaking point. Maybe at that breaking point, there is a click that would f get that person to go out and actually stand up against or to fight for something. But if there isn't like this tendency within certain sectors of Christianity to just like feel sorry for themselves and to then just retreat into what's safe, which is the congregation. Does that make sense? Yeah, I do wonder, there seems to be two different stripes here where you have sort of the those who consider uh, America's you know Christianity as being a sort of symbolic thing. They're not really invested in anything specifically Christian other than just sort of the symbol that's associated with like the white patriarchal family or something like that. Um, those are the kind of people I imagine would probably try to take to the streets or in some sense try and fight any sort of uh, major secular uh, grab for power like that. Um, I do think the people that we know, like the reformer, like reformed people, reformed Baptists, those who are more theologically oriented and are really individually and personally invested in the sort of... Um, uh, and their and their Christianity in the way that, that you know we grew up with would probably 
I mean, given the fetishization that they have for like the church in China, which is, I mean, I know when we were like in high school and we heard that constantly about the real people who were fighting the good fight are those who were in China and are fighting mm. secular power, not by taking to the streets, but by holding underground churches and printing right, Bibles right. and stuff like that, right? Because, um, you know, the communists are coming for every symbol of Christianity and to burn it and destroy it because they're afraid of its power to change people's lives or whatever. Um, and that, I think, that the fetishization of that and all the stories that were made up that weren't really true about that stuff um, kind of showed that I think that those kind of people would probably really like nothing more than to have the underground secret churches or at least to think that they are. Um, they're doing something mm -hmm. radical. Uh, against the state, not by sort of taking to the streets and trying to take power, but by taking their martyrdom status. Hmm. Yeah, which makes me think that there's something like fundamentally flawed about that particular disposition, because it does seem to be separate from the world, right? Um, and and I mean that in the most extreme sense, not in the like we're in the world but we're trying to transform it according to like a higher principle kind of thing but you know people talk about being in but not of the world like that could have like a productive um orientation or it could have like this retreating we're not going to engage at all we're just simply going to um kind of insulate ourselves and this really is part of uh, like american fundamentalism and evangelicalism right that's why you get the emergence of christian music and christian art and christian schools and christian daycares and christian fucking whatever else pie shops and stuff like that it was the um it was the kind of like conscious and then progressive endeavor to completely separate and then isolate from those larger civic concerns. And I think that really hits to why someone like David Bentley Hart says that this form of Christianity is not anything like you read in the gospel, at least how he reads it, right? This isn't, this isn't, there's no concern for civic virtue. There's no concern for truly like actually proactively engaging with the levers of power and of inequality and oppression and things like that, because you're just so concerned with your own like escape from the world or ticket to heaven or whatever the fuck it is yeah i mean he just straight up says america's not christian right um yeah i mean historically he means so he says contrary to conventional wisdom christianity has never really taken deep root in america or had any success in forming american consciousness in its place we have invented a kind of orphic mystery religion of personal liberation fecundated and sustained by a cult of mammon which is a pretty great line there's a good example of his poetic prose right yeah, so I thought that was a really interesting and polemically, um, like, fiery take. But here's the thing. Then in my mind, I'm, I'm just thinking of all of, like, the post-religious or post-post-religious um, types of critiques, right? Where they say that, well, there are different types of Christianity. That actually America is Christian. This is Christianity, this is a version of Christianity, right? Like, obviously, Hart is essentializing what he thinks Christianity is here. So there are a few problems. One, he's essentializing, and he's like— Yeah, for like, polemical purposes, though. I think he's aware that he's essentializing. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think that—I think that he really believes it, though. It's not just simply rhetorical, right? Like, I think he really believes that, no, no— America is not Christian and that there is some pure form of Christianity. Whereas you would get a lot of people, like particularly, let's say, like like critical race theorists, post-colonial theorists, who would say that actually Christianity is part and parcel of a lot of the great 
ills that we see in the world. And that even if David Bentley Hart is kind of advocating for a nice Christianity, we might say, that there probably is still some sort of stain of like uh, Western imperialism or a type of like Anglo supremacy or something that is going to um, that is going to like disallow him from sitting up on his pedestal that he's erecting. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Ultimately, I think we're we're going to get to this idea, but I I don't think that Hart's sort of um, Christian version of socialism or Christian communism or whatever he wants to call it is ultimately going to be. Um, a resolution to the problems that he's bringing up. And it's going to actually, I think, be sort of uh, wrong or fail for some of the same reasons that he thinks the sort of American version has failed. Um, so yeah, I think it, it does have those problems and trying to distance itself too much from the Orphic mystery cult of American Christianity or whatever he wants to call it. Which is a great fucking line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I want to so, use it. <laughs> so here's the um, description he gives. This isn't his description of what he thinks like the ideal Christian socialism would be, but it's what he calls John Ruskin's uh, Christian socialism. And I think it's it, the way he phrases it, it's pretty clear that he's doing this in sort of affirmatory way. He mm -hmm. says, it's a principled Christian communism by which he means not state ownership of property, but a prior communal claim upon the goods of the earth and upon excess resources by those in need is the only possible civilized and truly charitable alternative to modern liberalism, whether mm. fiscal or social. And so and it's kind of key there. He's talking about not state ownership of property. So he's kind of saying uh, this is where he thinks sort of the DSA model is not really going to be um, the the resolution, even though he's, he, said, he says he's a member of the DSA. Where does he say like something like a um, an outside member? He has a better phrase for it. But so a member, but not fully invested, right? Only because it's the only game in town that's pro-labor or something right. like that. Um, uh, but he thinks ultimately the DSA is going to be sort of the same sort of secularized, ethically voluntarist. Um, what does he say? It's the another in, in, incarnation of sanctimonious, ethically voluntarist, pro-choice American liberalism. And by pro-choice, he doesn't mean in terms of abortion. He means in terms of um, the, the tradition of like American libertarianism. Yeah. Yeah, sort yeah. of negative no, but, liberty but, stuff we're talking about. But but to be fair, he does say that the reason he says that is because he sees creeping in what sometimes we might call like like woke leftism, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the fear that he sees it turning into that it's going to turn into just another type of like lukewarm center left liberalism that it's not going to be pro worker, anti capitalist, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, it's the ethics. Importantly, I think that's the yeah. key here. It's the sort of value theory he sees that comes out in like the AOCs. Um, and stuff like that, where, you know, Zizek once remarked that, that, you know, Bernie Sanders isn't that radical. He's just another moral reformer from the early 20th century. And I thought that that was an interesting way of putting it, because as much as Bernie is politically revolutionary and radical in terms of the American landscape of, you know, American Congress, um, sort of the rhetoric he uses is not new at all, right? Mm. And uh, the sort of moral tinge that it has to it, I think, has been a huge part of why his movement has sort of... Um, gain the power that it has in the last several years, and I think it's no surprise that it's that it's women largely who have risen to power um, in the DS as members of the DSA in uh, Congress. Given that this sort of uh, moral tinge to it is something that seems like uh, men in leadership tend to shy away from, uh, mm. men seem more likely to to follow the sort of technocratic line, even if they have this sort of um, moral. Um, 
motivation for it in the first place. I don't want to gender essentialize that, but there's just like a general yeah, right. there that's, I think, important to point out. Um, and so, yeah, hearts pointing to that sort of uh, moral motivation at the heart of these things, uh, the sort of, you know, woke progressive movement or whatever, and saying that's poison. Like that's, yeah, I want a pro-labor group to support politically. And the DSA is the only real pro-labor a fully pro-labor organization, so I'm going to support them, right? But the, the yeah. sort of value theory at the heart of it is poisonous, and that's going to be its undoing in the end. Mm. Yeah, I will say this, kind of going back to the affirmative quote or or mention of Ruskin, the thing that I really do like is this idea that basically what he's advocating is an opening of the commons, right? Mm. He's, he's, he's advocating for a type of orientation in the world that uh, that opens itself up to that which exists prior to enclosure, prior to privatization, prior to inscription under the abstract forces, the abstract um, dominating forces of uh, the logic of capital. And when he says so, the type of socialism that he's advocating or communism that he's advocating that it's not like state control or state ownership it's because he he's suspicious of the ussr and he's suspicious of of mao's china um of like a totalitarian or authoritarian bureaucratic state-run type of socialism and that rather what he seems to be advocating for is something um kind of almost like like forgetting the linearity that you get in in certain Marxist formulations where it's like capitalism turns to socialism, turns to the withering of the way of the state and leading to communism, is that he kind of is like, if you will create, a, if, if there's a sequence, it's kind of like trying to almost not go backwards, temporally speaking, but to um, the pre-distributive mechanisms of the socioeconomic framework, right? So not worrying about redistribution, but actually trying to advocate for what are those pre-distributive conditions where we are actually collectively sharing in the resources of earth and in the resources of culture and in the resources of the symbolic order and in the resources of uh, artistic creation and knowledge creation and knowledge production that we, we don't need to distribute them equitably through a central mechanism, but rather we need to figure out what are the preconditions by which we can claim those things and then open them up before they even go through the uh, process of enclosure itself in the first place. Okay, so here's my take, um, given right. what you just said. This whole pre-distribution, not redistribution mantra, right? Um, so this claim here of we're not talking about a Christian communism wouldn't be talking about state ownership of property, but instead a prior communal claim upon goods yeah. as they are needed, right? Um, which I don't think it's, 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 he's using both Christian and Marxist language. Uh, yeah, definitely. There, right? On purpose, I think. Um, what does that mean? It's, it's purposefully vague, right? It's obviously a short essay, so he's not going to sort of lay out an entire political program here. But the way that reads to me, and it's been, a, I read Beauty of the Infinite a long time ago, and I don't remember any of it because I haven't talked about it since then. <laughs> but, um, and that was a more philosophical book, not really getting too deep into sort of the political praxis. But the way I read that is um, there's going to have to be a sort of hierarchical communal form that exists prior to the state, which does the work of this sort of pre-distribution, right? It's the church. Um, and, yeah, and decides according <laughs> what people need, 
um, according to its own sort of logic, right? It's the yeah. capital C church, right? Yeah. Um, and not in the sort of you know Roman Catholic version, he's Orthodox, right? So he wants a church which has all the power, but it isn't named. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I read it as that. And mm. to me, that just sounds like, and he's opposing that to sort of um, state ownership of property or you know, something like this redistributionist model or whatever. And it's, it's important that in, earlier in this essay, he even says, look, we're not in danger of becoming uh, the USSR or you know, some total, uh, totalitarian state. Like that's not gonna happen. If anything, if the DSA took control, we'd just look more like the Nordic states, which are not, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people are not afraid of losing their civil liberties there, right? If anything, yeah. they're way more free. Um, so he's not saying that the DSA is gonna lead us down the road towards the USSR, but he is saying that both the totalitarian sort of socialist state model and the sort of Nordic uh, democratic socialist state model, um, neither of those, um, Really, they might, you know, the latter might make things better than they currently are, might give us more substantial freedoms than we currently have. But they're not going to lead towards this actual um, people get what they need uh, result, which is mm-hmm. what we want. It seems like he's kind of hinting at the idea that there has to be this other cultural um, sort of formation, right, uh, and community that does this work, not the state. And yeah, the to philo- me, the philosopher kings. Yeah, exactly. And that just sounds to me like we're going to achieve economic equality, right? And the kind of freedoms we're talking about that America promises but doesn't deliver. But we're not going to do it through political equality. We're going to do well, what's it through the alternative? Um, what's what's the quote-unquote democratic alternative? Yeah, I mean, he seems to doesn't even sort of think about the sort of relationship between political equality and economic equality, right? Mm. Which is sort of, this is the model that sort of, you know, quote-unquote socialists have uh, offered. If we achieve political equality, that's the road towards the economic equality that we want, where people get mm-hmm. what they need, right? right. Um, but he's sort of saying that's not going to work um, for various reasons, and instead we have to have this sort of political hierarchy, which will then deliver the economic equality um, that sort of enhances or uh, instantiates the kind of freedom that we're talking about that we want. Um, and kind of shoehorning it to the back door. He doesn't do it to the back door in his you know, major works. But if he's talking about economic equality here and whether or not we want that and the kind of freedoms that come with it, we're going to have to do it through um, some sort of political form. Well, here's a sort of pre-political form that it's going to have to happen in. And that just seems to me like a total erasure of, of the fact that, and I think this is kind of a guiding principle, political equality has to be achieved for economic equality to be achieved. There isn't another way to do it. And mm. the church being given all the power um, or some cultural form of the church, whatever it is, either it's you know, decentralized or whatever, um, isn't going to do that. It's just going to mm. have more and more power over others and then not actually instantiate freedom, but instead sort of an enslavement or attachment to that cultural form. Here's something I have a question about. In his final paragraph, he's talking about these uh, previous Christian socialist formulations and he says what remains of that tradition now i cannot say with any certainty to some extent it was always a dream of an impossible future sustained by fantasies of a non-existent past in some of its aspects however well intended those overly rosy views of class distinction for instance or that gauzily gleaming pre-raphaelite medievalism are not worth preserving or reviving except perhaps in radically qualified form. Do you think that he's kind of, 
that he himself is still like nostalgic for this like pre-Raphaelite, this this pre-feudal medievalism that he's critiquing, but he's saying, but wait a second, before enclosure comes and things like that, what you have is a system where people were committed to Christian love and to um, that the church was kind of governing things. And um, do you think that that is kind of, that's what gives the game away in the essay, that he actually is still clamoring for that kind of Christendom, the past of Christendom, but in a modified form, not in the same way, but in some sort of like, we can learn from those mistakes, um, a kind of like Hegelian synthesis. We've gone through capitalism. We can't go back to uh, the synthesis or to the uh, thesis. We don't want the antithesis. Well, here is some sort of like post-capitalist slash pre-Raphaelite, uh, I don't know, amalgam. You know, do you think yeah, that's we, kind we, we of... can do Christian monarchalism better this time? Trust us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Which is, you know, kind of because it is reasons. interesting that who does he praise? He doesn't praise William Morris. He praises John Ruskin, who's a monarchist and a Tory. That's interesting, mm-hmm. right? Like he says that Ruskin was the kind of like most famous or well known of these Christian socialists more than William Morris. I'm not sure that's the case. He chooses Ruskin, and I think that's a real selective choice. Yeah, I mean, I think. From from the sort of conservative vantage point, Ruskin was certainly is looked upon more fondly. He he can sort of cross bridges, in a way others can't. Like yeah. I know conservative people who who like Ruskin. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's precisely yeah. the point. That's what's interesting, right? Yeah, and it, it's funny because you know this kind of argument is only ever going to have any rhetorical force or persuasive force with somebody who's Christian or ex-Christian or has a nostalgia for like, you know. For incense being burned in church or something like that, right? <laughs> um, or who enjoys like high church liturgy or something like that, right? Like literally yeah. nobody else, anybody else who reads this is just gonna be like, "What the hell are you talking about? Why would I ever want that?" Um, <laughs> and that's fine. Like I think he would realize that and 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 be aware of it and and sort of dismiss it as not his audience or whatever. But um, it should be telling, right? This idea that what it was it um one of Milbank's great and by great I mean terrible lines was. The ideal government is like in Lord of the Rings where the king lives very, very far away. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can't remember exactly, but it's something like that. And it's just like the most eye rolly. oh my God, like this guy is just like a fucking D&D nerd when it comes to politics. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like that kind of thing where it's like this weird like nostalgia, mix of nostalgia and like fantasy, but then it's supposed to be taken seriously as an actual like advancement for a political program, but it's so vague that you're not even sure what they're getting at. Okay, let me ask you this. What is ontologically different? Where are the differences between um, someone like David Bentley Hart, who we're saying is advocating, he does specifically talk about like the quote-unquote politics of Jesus, but ultimately the politics of the kingdom with a capital K, right? And then, you know, that's kind of like Milbankian uh, desire for the reinstitution of Christendom where you have these like beneficent philosopher king leaders. What's the difference between that and Zizek saying, I actually would rather just have like um, the state just sit there. He's like criticizing that everyone is like, oh, democracy, democracy. Everyone wants to create the post-capitalist world. He's like, fuck that. I just want the state to take care of all of that. And then let me just have like this wonderful like world where everything is taken care of. What's the difference between those two? One is clearly coming from a supposed Marxist 
orientation. And then the other one is coming from a kind of Christian Christendom orientation. But they seem to be quite similar in some ways in terms of just wanting like the wise, beneficent leader to take care of everything and to institute things. They want that kind of, for lack of a better term, centralized bureaucracy. No? I mean, yeah, but I think that the major difference would just be whether or not that that sort of centralized bureaucracy is beholden to sort of democratic legitimacy. Like, where does it get its legitimacy from? Hart's version gets its legitimacy metaphysically. From God. It just yeah. is, it just is yeah. legitimate of its nature. Yeah. The right? chain and, of being or some shit like that, yeah. probably. And if you yeah. if you question that, you just you don't understand the metaphysics, bro. Mm, mm, <laughs> right? mm. But the argument is just like some like ridiculous abstract um, philosophical argument that you really can't <laughs> defeat because it's sort of insulated from any sort of criticism outside of itself. It's mm. its own self justifying force, right? Yeah, as the great chain of being is, um, which I guess is why it's rhetorically powerful for those who already accept that kind of mm. metaphysics, right? Because it's, it's insulated from critique from the outside. It's totally, um, entirely uh, like uh, inward looking in that sense, um, which is fine, I guess, if you're writing a like a paper or an essay or a book or, you know, talking over beers and stroking your beard, but that's not going to have any sort of democratic legitimacy in the real world. And mm. if that's important to you, if you think that sort of, you know, political equality is an important road for achieving uh a better society, then that's not going to have any purchase for you. Hmm. You know what I think is a fun um, kind of like comparison here? I was thinking about this. As soon as I read it, I was like, oh shit, that's kind of funny. He says that, um, I know that Christ in the Gospels calls his followers to a different kind of politics altogether, for want of a better term, the politics of the kingdom. Of this, even the wisest, most compassionate, and most provident form of democratic socialism could never be anything more than a faint, premonitory shadow. Even so, a shadow is not nothing. You know what I was thinking here? There's like a weird Marxist inversion. Rather than the withering away of the state, what you get is sort of like the withering away of democratic socialism is what he really ultimately wants, right? Yeah. He, he sees democratic socialism as being a premonitory shadow that is sort of like hinting at the beauty of the infinite, but because it's still a material reality, it's going to be kind of beholden to instrumental rationality, or what does he call it earlier, like the Darwinian calculus and uh, brute survival and things like that. He, I think he kind of seeds that, oh, that's just naturally going to happen in, uh, in a secular world. But I think his view is that, yeah, 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 three cheers for socialism, because socialism is the step that leads us to Christendom. Which is insane <laughs> right i mean he's basically he's basically a drug dealer right who's like i'll give you a little bit of economic equality as a treat right mm. get you hooked on the economic equality that the nordics have and then you'll want uh fucking christendom right <laughs> because yeah. that's going to really deliver you the full the full high of economic equality <laughs> Whatever, mm. right? it's, it's like what <laughs> Yeah. Only only a purely metaphysical argument could get you there because you're not going to have anything empirical to say about that transition. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really interesting piece because, you know, part of me, I, I, I do get a stirring within probably just because of my history when I read stuff like this because I do think that there is something, you know, we've talked about this to death probably on the podcast so far, um, but I do think there is something lacking in a lot of more just like brute materialist political programs and there is something about seeking the good there is something about 
addressing those metaphysical concerns that I think I, I wish uh, that I wish would be a part of our community. I mean, capitalist community as a, an expression of modernity is essentially like trying to completely cut itself off from the metaphysical. It wants to reduce everything purely to the instrumental. It wants to reduce everything purely to the functional, um, to inputs and outputs and to numbers and to exchange and quantity to the death of quality, right? Rene Ganon wrote this book called The Reign of Quantity, and that's one of the things he talks about, right? That that's kind of what you get with, with capitalist modernity. Um, you know, and I think even Marx writes about this. All that is solid melts into air. I mean, the point of that, and then Marshall Berman wrote a great book about that, but the point of that is that there's this idea that the values, social values, cultural values, interpersonal values, relational values, they all become subject to the logic of capital, which fractures them and disperses them and then reconvenes them around its own logic, which is just purely oriented towards the reproduction of capital and for capital accumulation ultimately, right? That's the yeah, way I mean, that it I, functions. Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, I think you're exactly right that, you know, I agree with her and I very much think that it's great to bring this idea of the sort of relationship between morality and value theory um, and politics back into the fore again because that's that's the motivational sort of import of even Marxism, right? Uh, even though, yeah. you know, like most Marxists consider themselves like amoral or whatever, hmm. um, the fact that that's changing and that there's a strong moral impulse towards uh, considering different forms of social association and economic association is great. The fact that it's it's very superficially uh, talked about and kind of naive and, and and invokes all these sort of like woke um, platitudes is bad, right? You want to mm. change that. You want to help make that more mature and um, sort of universal and uh, you know, fully formed. Um, and so there's, there's good criticisms to have there towards sort of like the woke form of morality that exists in popular discourse. Uh, and I'm, I agree with Hart on that 100%. But again, the answer is not going to be like uh, a, a value theory and an ethics, you know, developed upon the, you know, metaphysics of the great chain of being. Like, that's not going to, no. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so here's here's the irony. My The irony of, of Marxism in trying to provide a universal um, template for how to contest the encroachment of capital and then potentially lay the groundwork for an alternative, it ends up actually not being truly universal, which is where you get certain like, you know, um, like feminist Marxists and black Marxists and things like that. They come in and they recognize that, right? Post-colonial theories, they come in and they recognize that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so then the question is, is, okay, so what would a more universal theory be that allows for these other concerns of social difference but that also allows for metaphysical concerns i mean is are we just talking about like a radical pluralism one that allows for um many religions because now hart is also um he's a universalist and he does think that other religions are kind of just express like what is the kind of like metaphor of like the blind people touching the elephant kind of thing i think mm. ultimately like christianity is the supreme one in his mind but shadows I think, in the same way that that social democracy is a shadow of the ultimate political form probably i think i think yeah. that's right yeah yeah so if we were going to try to to theorize like how could we reintroduce the metaphysics without falling into the the western imperial or colonial trap 
that Hart's discourse seems to be trapped within? Is it something that ha just has to take in, like, Buntu philosophy, that has to take in Taoism, that has to take in, you know, uh, indigenous, uh, indigenous Australians, Dreamtime? Like, is that enough, or is that, like, do you see what I'm getting at? Like, what do you think is a positive way forward here? Yeah, I mean, I mean, are you talking specifically just about how the religions sort of uh, interrelate in that sense? Shoot, not – I mean, it, it, that's only one part of it, I guess. But yeah, like specifically, let's just say now since they tend to be more explicitly metaphysical. Yeah, I mean, again, do this again, this uh, idea of sort of um, equality of power and political equality, it does seem like in some sense um, the kind of universalism he's talking about is more like a uh, everyone's equal but some are more equal than others. <laughs> kind of a thing, right? Um, right. So it, it's going to be Christendom, even though everyone else is allowed to exist as long as they pay the appropriate tributes or whatever, uh, which isn't all that different than like how the early Muslim dynasties kind of worked, right? Um, they were pretty uh, open to toleration, right? Um, but then it was really, we all knew who the, the boss was in the end. Um, and maybe that's, I mean, I, I don't know if he would if he would say like that, an analogy with that's kind of the proper political form of how you know, Christendom was a little bit more a little bit more uh, intent on uh, converting the pagans rather than letting them live as long as they paid tribute. Um, and so maybe the, the Muslim form is a little bit uh, more what he's, what he's going for. But even that, no, that's just, that's not really pluralism, right? Um, I guess as a philosophical answer, I mean, don't you, do you think that it maybe comes down to like some epistemic humility there and just the sense that the idea that we're going to have this fully fleshed out metaphysics that gets down to the deep roots of nature and how God creates the world and all that. Like if, if you think that that's available to you epistemically and that you can like formulate your ethics based upon that, then you're just never going to have like a form of political equality. It's always going to be some um, facile form where some are more equal than others. Yeah, I mean, this is where I think you we're starting to get to first principles here. Right. And where I think that maybe the first principles that I find most appealing that I would advocate as kind of driving things are this idea of a kind of radical contingency, yeah. which it's that that even if we think that these formulations are the best way to stimulate equality, we need to recognize that 50 years from now, 500 years from now, it's. Go, we're going to be presented with new challenges, new formulations, new social identities, and that we need to be willing and open to appreciate those things and work with them productively um, and not to resist um, and that we need to perpetually have this openness. But then have I just like reached the limit of what I can say? Is that just my – that's my foundation so to speak, right? Like that is the metaphysical ground. It's radical contingency or do we do like avoid universalism and say that oh well we can actually somehow through like a mathematical speculative ontology we can uh advocate for equality fraternity and um freedom right that those three principles which just so happen to be the three principles of the french revolution that those are the three that we can advocate for right like is that it is equality the foundation that's and i think that's kind of where we ultimately get it because if we say that like the problem with heart is that like yeah everyone's equal but equal but some people are are more equal than others kind of thing um why why is equality the thing that we are so concerned with or why is democracy the thing that we are so concerned with you know like what what are those things and i'm not saying that we shouldn't praise those or prize those things but like what gets us there or is that just kind of shit you got to kind of just lay your feet down somewhere and then you work from there and I don't know. You stay open. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, there's not so much we can say about this because we're getting to the really abstract foundational like elements here. But there's something for me that's just really persuasive about the idea that we kind of have to start where we are and thinking about our relations with the people around us and that we interact mm-hmm. with and then eventually to those we don't interact with but we actually affect um, and thinking about how we can best associate with them. Like how, how can we actually have reasons for why we do what we do? Um, and that seems radically different than a notion which is like starting with either the brute revelation of God in Jesus Christ or the Bible on one sphere or mm-hmm. the sort of metaphysical foundations of the universe as given by God through I don't know, like metaphys- the powers of metaphysical speculation or something like that. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, that's, I can tell you which of those options seems like way more persuasive to me in thinking about how I can interact in my daily life with other people. Um, mm. And so that seems to me like a, a better starting point than the other options. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I, I, I like agree that. with you that radical contingency is the thing, right? Because you don't get to start with first principles um, that God exists or, you know, um, the great chain of being uh, is instantiated in the universe through like the plenitude of existence or something like that. You, you don't get to start that way. Um, it's not your epistemic starting point. Um, and so if you kind of have, you, you understand that the metaphysical foundations of the universe are a thing, like you, but you have to work with radical contingency as the sort of background, going back and forth between the abstract and the concrete, right? Thinking mm-hmm. about your concrete actions and then the abstract principles, which, judge or exemplified by them criticize them whatever right and going back and yeah. forth between the concrete and the abstract the only abstract like ultimate metaphysical principle i think you can really work with there is that radical contingency yeah yeah i think that's right yeah but you should okay. go back and read void universalism by brazarov <laughs> and listen to like our we... episodes on it as well that's right you should listen we did a whole series on void universalism by brazarov um yeah, really interesting article, man. It's Troy and I were talking before we started recording, and I was saying, you know, I'd love to just like design a course where you could actually use this kind of shit, but in conjunction right? with like actual Marxist. <laughs> I mean, like, how great was this con? Like, how great would this be as a class in talking with students, especially if they were students who had also read like more um like typical left critiques of capitalism and then maybe had some pushback it could be really good i mean there'd be i mean, I could imagine some really good essays or presentations being done like looking at like the christian critique of socialism versus like maybe like i don't know anarchism because there's a lot of similarity here right and then you know you can throw in a little bit of like um, like typical like state socialist formulations as well. I just feel like it would be such a cool class, man. And wouldn't you want to hear from like the kid whose family's from um, like the Punjab region in India? Yeah. And to see like, so we're speculating about how would someone who doesn't have this nostalgia for high liturgy and Christendom feel about this, this sort of uh, development here from heart. Like, I want to hear what someone who has no association with this stuff at all thinks about this to see if my speculation about that my like role taking as as if I was them actually mm. cashes out. Yeah, I want to hear these different perspectives because I don't really have them. I don't know what it would be like to not have this nostalgia for these things because I have it too. Fuck it, man. We're just going to have to start our own Owls at Dawn Academy where we just, just <laughs> that's what we do. For profit school. Teach. The that's Trump administration right. finally gives us an avenue. <laughs> Bessie DeVos. Oh, no. oh, God. AOD University. <laughs>
or OAD, AOD. I was thinking AOC. OAD. <laughs> she can be president of school and get us all that cash money. That's right. Fucking finally making that Chapo money. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, I say we go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Uh, is there anything you just want to say in conclusion? Um, no, I would just encourage anybody to go and, and read that article. And uh, if you're interested more in what Har has to say or like his um, his prose style, definitely check out Beauty of the Infinite. It's a fun read, even if kind of maddening. It's a bit of like a psychedelic trip. It's not yeah. like anything else that exists out there in the philosophical, theological sphere. Before you read Beauty of the Infinite, though, I would say go listen to some of his YouTube talks because he's got some interesting like discussions with – I don't know who he is. He's like some scientist guy that does all these talks about like does God exist and he does all these interviews with various other like astrophysicists and philosophers and things like that. And David Bentley Hart has a whole series of questions that he does with this dude talking about whether or not God exists, whether or not many religions um, are the right way to, to view things. Um, all kinds of things. And uh, that's kind of an, an interesting introduction. And then he also has just tons of content online where he's like engaging with Deleuze. There's one where he's engaging with John Milbank and they're talking about like fucking like Neoplatonism and stuff. Um, so there's all kinds of interesting content out there that you can find. Just go to YouTube. It's David Bentley Hart and it's H-A-R-T. So, yeah, And he's got other short books that aren't as, as maddening and as uh, overwhelming of a project as beauty of the infinite like uh i remember reading doors of the sea which was his book on the problem of evil uh, yeah i think he's written one recently on um on like universalism too oh that all shall be saved yeah i heard about that but i haven't looked at yeah that. yeah 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 so um all right interesting stuff just real quick i just want to say it's not the end of the episode it's the end of the segment don't go anywhere people yeah he ain't cutting segment. me off yo no 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 we got we got some new stuff that we got to get into here Now we're going to transition to our final segment before we can actually send you off in the episode. And this is the one where we get to talk about something that's given us meaning in a world. What will usher us into our own infinities, if you will. Uh, So it's Troy's (laughs) turn to talk this week. Troy, what's given you meaning, man? Talk about the beauty of the infinite. I have some aesthetic recommendations for you all right now. So I wanted to talk about really briefly two musical artists, both of whom have passed away in the past year one late last year and one um, just recently from coronavirus and they're two guys who um, come from sort of the folk tradition in an American popular music but from very different vantage points in that tradition Um, and who I have great personal affection for and love their work and um, uh, maybe they're, they're both pretty popular in their own spheres, but people outside of those spheres probably wouldn't know about them. And they are John Prine and David Berman. Have you heard of either of them? I only heard of John Prine because Twitter blew up when he passed away just recently. Yeah. I'd never, I'd never listened to a sing. I'd like, I don't know anything about the guy. Yeah. He's, I'll start with him. He's a really interesting uh, figure in popular music because he's really huge in the country music sphere um, and he has a lot of crossover with sort of indie hipsters because especially his early stuff is, is not super country inflected. It's more folky. Hmm. Um, and he's also uh, has such an interesting uh, backstory that I think a lot of people grab onto. And it, it adds a level of um, sort of authenticity and honesty to his music, along with the fact that he never really hit it big in the same way that um, the other major figures in country did. And certainly, you know, he was along the 
the lines of the like the new Dylans in the early 70s. Unless so like Neil Young and, and others who hit it big, right? Um, post Dylan, Prine never achieved that status. So he still, you can still gain some credibility by being a Prine fan in that way. Um, but he recently passed away from, from the coronavirus and he has such a, a great story. He was a mailman in his 20s um, and he would play, I think he was living in Chicago, even though he was from the, the South. His family was from like Kentucky or Tennessee or something. And he would um, play these little shows in coffee shops with his own folk tunes while, you know, after he would do his whole day of delivering the mail. Um, and they had this really deep, uh, deep, like uh, emotional lyricism, but also he could be kind of sardonic and jokey at the same time. And he seemed like just a down home country boy. Right, who was a blue collar worker. So he had this great sort of persona he had developed and it was totally authentic because it was just him. He was just playing music. And I think the story goes that Roger Ebert, uh, you know, the great film critic in the uh, latter t- part of the 20th century, went to a movie, I forget which movie, and he hated it so much that he just left the theater like a third of the way through and went to the bar next door to have a drink because he was so upset about how bad the movie was. Hmm. And John Prine was playing in that bar. And Roger Ebert thought Prine was so amazing that he'd write his first ever musical column instead of the movie column because he hated the movie he was watching. So he wrote this musical column in like 1970 or something and uh, published it in the, the Chicago, um, what's the major Chicago paper? The Chicago. Is it the Tribune or the Sun? Yeah, probably the Tribune. Either the Sun or the Tribune, I forget which one the Ebert wrote for. Okay. But yeah, he wrote this story on Prine and Prine blew up after that and got a record deal and didn't have to deliver the mail anymore. Um, and it's a fantastic story, right? Uh, hmm. The sort of uh, meeting of Roger Ebert and John Prine and this weird night where hmm. Ebert was so pissed off he had to go and just get a drink, and that started Prine's career. Um, but he did a lot of a lot of great records. All, my favorite stuff from him is all in the seventies. Um, his self-titled first record is a, kind of a classic. The next few records are all great. He later, I think, in the early two thousands, developed lymphoma or some some kind of cancer. Um, in or around his vocal cords, I forget exactly where, um, and had to have surgery a couple different times. I think he had he um, ended up having cancer several times, and it greatly affected his voice. So he, for a long time, he didn't release any music in the early two thousands. And then in two thousand eighteen, a couple of years ago, he finally released a, a new album called "The Tree of Forgiveness," um, and his voice has totally changed. You can tell that it's been affected by all the cancer. So now he has this like gravelly, like, have you heard the American recordings that Johnny Cash did in the early 2000s with Rick Rubin? Uh, is that Johnny the one Cash when he does like, like hurt in it and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. I only heard, I only heard that one song. Oh, they're classic recordings. Right. And, um, but Johnny Cash has this like incredibly just like experienced voice now. Right. And he always mm-hmm. had a great voice. Um, but now it feels like, oh my God, this person's like seen shit. Right. You can, you can like, you can almost feel the experience being transmitted to you through mm. the way his voice sounds. Brian has that same effect for me on the last album he did. And he even has a, a song on that record called When I Get to Heaven, where he talks about um, when he dies, he'll get to heaven and he'll start, you know, making sure everyone's drinking whiskey and partying and stuff. And he'll even allow a couple of his critics in, into and he'll make them drinks. And it's this great, like, raucous kind of party country song, um, which is all the more poignant now. Um, that he's passed away. So Prine's a, a figure that I love. And I think if, if people enjoy sort of the folk tradition, like the, you know, the Dylan-esque tradition, 
but they they can't get into country. Prime's like the absolute, uh, for lack of a better term, prime way <laughs> to segue into that world, um, because he kind of overlaps between the folk and the country traditions, and he doesn't have the sort of he's not trying to get on like you know national radio or or whatever. He's he's definitely keeps that um, sort of authentic Americana sound and spirit to his music hmm. that a lot of the other country artists who made it big did not keep. Um, so if you like Towns Van Zant, for instance, then then Prime's a, uh, another great one in that vein. And then the other one I want to recommend is David Berman. So David Berman was part of a uh, kind of famous indie rock group in the 90s called the Silver Jews. Have you ever heard of them? No. Yeah, they're, they're really big. You know, do you know Pavement from the 90s? Nope. Yeah, Pavement was another big indie rock group, and so there was uh, the the lead singer of Pavement was also in Silver Jews with David Berman, um, and so the Silver Jews were a great band. They kind of have this like kind of um, Americana esque influenced indie rock, um, but really really dark and sardonic lyrics. And Berman was known as kind of being this this great lyricist who was always like on the verge of you know despondency and falling apart. Um, and so anybody who's into like the '90s kind of lackadaisical lazy boy indie rock will love Berman's Silver Jews stuff he also in the uh, mid 2000s sort of disappeared off the scene for a long time especially for the last 10 years and then came back last year with a record called Purple Mountains and he changed the name of his band from Silver Jews to Purple Mountains um, in reference to like Purple Mountains Majesty uh, that song um, and it's a fantastic record I absolutely love this record it's one of my favorite records of last year um, and he released the record. It came out to a huge sort of acclaim from critics and listeners alike. And then he committed suicide like within a week or two after it mm. came out. And his story is so incredibly sad. He, his father is one of like the architects of neoconservatism in America. Hmm. I forget what exactly he does, but he's like, um, uh, I can't remember if he works in finance or like a think tank or what he does. But he's like a major, major figure. It's something Berman. You can look it up uh, who his father is. And uh, David Berman um, made like his life's mission to figure out how to like counteract his dad <laughs> through art. <laughs> and to sort of uh, distance himself from it and demonize it and, and, and sort of, sort of make, make sure everyone else knew how his father was, re- was partly responsible for like all the worst things in America. Um, and I think he always held that as a burden on him. And uh, you can certainly, in the album that came out last year, Purple Mountains, see how all the, the weight of everything that he's experienced and been through from his family to, I think he, he split with his wife, who was kind of a, an indie rock queen, um, a little bit before this album came out. And you can hear it in several of the songs on this album, him basically talking about how he still loves her and he'll never not love her. And it's just killing him inside to not be with mm. her anymore. Uh, if you're if you're not into like feeling and empathizing with <laughs> the despondency of the of the of the uh, music you're listening to, this is not the record for you. Um, but it's fantastic and it's great and it's it's so sad that he wasn't really able to enjoy um, the acclaim that it got, and it mm. got the acclaim as soon as it came out uh, late last year, and it clearly didn't uh, resolve for him whatever uh, demons were plaguing him, mm. but. Um, that's okay. Um, it's 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 terrible and it's sad, but it's. Uh, I think one thing you can do for figures like Prine and, and Berman who've who've passed away is when you listen to their music, you can kind of 
appreciate and respect the work they did. And in a way you can, you can sort of do them, um, you can sort of honor them and you can, you know, relate to them in an appropriate way by acknowledging the great work that they did, even if they were um, unable to do so themselves um, for whatever reason. So again, John Prine, the full country artist starting in the 70s, and then David Berman, especially his Purple Mountains project, which came out last year. Check those two out if you're at all into Americana-inflected uh, folk music and indie rock. Yeah, the amount of like love and attention that Prine was getting, um, and, and I guess just the, kind, the, the pain that people were articulating online made me feel like like I should have just known who this dude was. It was like everybody was talking about the death of Prine. I was like, fuck, I never heard of this guy. So it was kind of strange, you know, that there could be somebody yeah. that that important and impactful in a sector that you know I've spent a lot of time, I guess, paying attention to. I just, I guess, not country and folk music is really kind of my one of my big blind spots musically. Um, but I never even heard the name, you know. Yeah, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that he wasn't certainly as popular and as big as the attention he's getting now would make you believe. Okay. But he clearly had uh, an influence on that, um, those spheres of music as sort of being a, a father figure to a lot of people and helping people out and being an encouragement. And he lived in Nashville and he was a big part of that music scene. And so mm. I think you're seeing a lot of people come out now and telling stories about him, not just because they want to have a story to tell, but because they, they really honestly want people to understand the influence he had that, that wasn't publicized, that wasn't sort of out there in the open um, for everyone to see. You know, and I think it's interesting when you see people in you know, public figures who die, you can you can tell a lot from the way people respond to it. It's not all just, you know, window dressing to try and get on a podcast or, or whatever. Mm. A lot of it's, you know, authentic, affectionate. I want people to understand who this person was and to honor them um, because they deserve it, even if, you know, they're passed away now. Hmm. Yeah. And yeah, people man. don't express that shit for someone that, that wasn't that way. Like they'll say they'll say platitudes and they'll say, you know, he was a great figure who did a lot of important music or whatever, but you can tell when the when people actually feel like, no, this, this person was was had a greater impact than anyone will ever know. And I want people to know that. Like you can tell when people really feel that way and they want to express it. Is he one of those like musicians musicians, or do you think that he also had that kind of impact on the audience like that there's just a real strong and intense attachment that the people who did listen to him have and that's why it seems like the praise is so maybe like um disproportionate compared to the breadth of his fame oh it's for sure the latter like he was not a great musician at all um he was oh, okay. down home country boy right um but but his thing was for sure both the the impact he had he did an album in the 90s, kind of a comeback album where he did a bunch of duets with a bunch of, with all um, female country musicians. Like um, Lucinda Williams and Emily Lou Harris and um, I forget who else. I know his wife's on there too, I think. And so that was a big thing too, was sort of getting women in country, um, being a big uh, sort of proponent of, of women's influence on country. Mm. Um, and then also like watch any videos with him. Um, especially his kind of comeback stuff in the last few years after his sort of recovery from cancer. And you can see this, like, he just has this effect on people and this persona and this gravitas of, of you know, it's not sort of authoritative gravitas. It's, it's that kind of like country homeboy. You can tell this is all authentic and you just want to be around this person because their energy is sort of infectious. Mm. Um, and you can see that in, even in his performances. 
cool. It's the kind of thing that you can imagine is exactly like what grabbed Roger Ebert, just mm. listening to some guy play folk music in a bar. Like, oh no, this person has a presence that that no one else has. Hmm. Okay. You always give me the goods musically, man. And then, of course, you're talking about what was the other dude's name? Not Prime, but uh, the other one. David Berman. Yeah, so you're talking about Berman, and you're talking about how heartbreaking the most recent project is. It reminds me of the time that you, like, broke my heart with, what was the dude's name when his, like, wife died, and he wrote the one about the crow? Oh, Mount Erie, yeah. Fuck me, man. You recommended that album, and I listened to that album, and I almost, like, went into a depression myself. Well, that, that yeah, that's a... Uh... I would say the Purple Mountains record is is will have a similar effect, not quite as much. <laughs> okay. As Mount Erie. Although that's what I was know, thinking. Ma- Mount yeah. Erie was about death, right? Yeah. The yeah, whole, yeah. That whole uh, record crawl looked at me was about death, and so it it's like right in your face the despondency, right? Yeah. Um, but Purple Mountains is more like you're looking back on this, realizing this was the last statement of someone before they before they killed themselves, and that adds a level of of kind of despair to it. Um, mm. Whereas you still think in, in the Mount Erie record. It's moving towards hope, even like if it's inching, if it's centimeters towards hope, it's still yeah. centimeters. Purple Mountains yeah. is not that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because he was still alive, right? And then the second album, the follow-up, because didn't he start dating like Michelle Williams or something like that? The dude from Mount Yeah, Area? they got married and then divorced a year later. Oh, shit. Well, yeah, fucking celebrity yeah, so couples, sad. man. That sucks. <laughs> but the album was kind of much more bright and upbeat, right? So The one after Cole looked at me? Yeah. Yeah, I think now only is actually, in some ways, musically, it's a better record. Mm. Um, even if it didn't have quite the impact. I mean, how could it? Like, Crow looked at me was devastating. Um, yeah. But yeah, both those records are fantastic. So yeah, if, if you're into that those Mount Airy records, then the Purple Mountains record, I think, would also be up your alley as well. If you can handle the Mount Airy records, you can handle the Purple Mountains record. <laughs> okay. Cool. Well, I say we go ahead and wrap up the episode. This time for real. End of the segment end of the episode yeah dude yeah yeah all right well thank you so much for tuning in peeps if you want to reach us you can hit us up on twitter owls underscore at underscore don instagram owls underscore at underscore don you can email us owls at don podcast at gmail.com you can support us at patreon at patreon.com slash owls at don and i think that's pretty much it um nothing else we got to say unless there's anything you can think of just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's up? Das Vidania, Americanski. Mm-hmm.